Humility is not the, the product of something you try to cultivate. It's really the product of giving your attention to Jesus Christ. The real question is not, how can I humble myself? The real question is, how can I occupy myself with Christ? He must increase, but I decrease. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Greatest Born of Women. We are continuing our study today in the last section of chapter three in the book of John. Here, John the Baptist addresses his disciples who report to him that Jesus, whom John had baptized, was now baptizing others. This came as a great concern to these disciples, but was not unexpected by John, We saw yesterday that sometimes people like these disciples can get jealous about a ministry with which they are affiliated. As we return to our study, Pastor Carl gives an example of this from the Old Testament. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that is Jesus, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now think your way through this and put yourself in their shoes. This is not just some piece of biblical narrative we skip over. It has all of the practical makings of competition, and there are some timeless lessons here for the church of Jesus Christ today. Please note, there's no mention here about the differing views of purification. There's just a complaint over why Jesus Christ is having a greater successful ministry than John. Remember, the mouth... Jesus said, speaks that which fills the heart. And it becomes apparent that what really concerns them is not an issue of purification, but an issue of following. Rabbi, you know the one you've been preaching about all this time, that you've been bearing witness to? Everybody's going to hell. It bothered some of these guys. Now, it didn't bother them as long as Jesus was preaching about Jesus and everybody was with John because they were on John's team. But John's team is no longer number one. It's slowly dissipating and shrinking, and they're going over to Christ's team. And so there's some pride and some jealousy that begins to come up to the top of the human heart. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to Numbers chapter 11. Very interesting text of Scripture. I think too often pride and jealousy and competition characterize Christians to the point where they will even nettle the leader to do something about it. And you have a classic example, not just here in John 3, but also in Numbers 11. A similar situation that took place in Moses' day. Oh, the people are moaning and growing. Life was good back there in Egypt. We had fish, we had melons, we had leeks, we had onions, we had garlics. But all we have out here in the wilderness is this lousy manna, three meals a day. Give us some meat, Moses. We're tired of it. Of course, that kindled the anger of God, and it kindled the anger of Moses. He's very upset. He says, God, why have you given me this people to minister to? And he goes to the Lord, and and God speaks to Moses there at the tent of the meeting, and he said, Moses, I want you to call 70 men to the tent, and the Spirit of God is going to fall on them as he falls on you, and they're going to preach my answer to these 2 million-plus people. Now, if you know the event... These people want meat. And God often gives people what they want. If a people is unrighteous, 
They often want an unrighteous and godly leader, and they get what they want. Well, here are these people. They are greedy. They want meat, and God gives them quail till it's coming out of their eyeballs. In fact, many people are dying with the quail in their teeth, and so they name the place Kibrath Havatava in Hebrew, graves of the greediness. In either case, the 70 go out, and they prophesy that God is going to judge the people, discipline the people for their disobedience. But there are two fellows, for whatever reason, who don't make it to the tent of the meeting when the rest have the Spirit of God fall upon them to prophesy. It's not because they're rebels, as some people have alluded to, because the text very says, clearly says in 11.6, all are qualified men. But in God's providence, he doesn't let them get to the tent of the meeting when the other 68 get there because he wants to show this act of prophesying was unrelated to Moses' presence. He would authenticate all 70 at any time by these men who prophesied later. Look at Numbers 11.26. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Get the thought, nah, 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 nah. Kind of a tattletale. <laughs> they're not one of the 70 you appointed at the tent of meeting, yet they're prophesying. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses, from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Now, Joshua's a good guy. He's a faithful servant of the Lord. He says, Moses, they shouldn't be doing that. They're not preaching under your authority. But Moses was not baited. Moses said to him, verse 29, are you jealous for my sake? Hey, guys, I don't have anything to prove. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. If God has another game plan, so be it, Moses said. The most important thing is that the Lord's work gets done. And so this great leader who's jealous for the glory of God and not for his own little kingdom is pleased with what happens. That's the kind of situation back here in John 3, different leader, John the Baptist. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Today it might sound like, hey, pastor, you got to do something. We're losing a lot of members to that new church down the street. And so John's disciples are feeling the crunch of competition. But instead of pulling out some new glitzy gimmick to get them back, John employs a different strategy. And I really believe that this is the reason why Jesus said he's the greatest of all men born of women, which brings me to the second point, what John the Baptist declares. He doesn't yield to what they want him to say and do. He responds, if you'll note, on three levels. First, John declares that God is sovereign. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's given a maximum of sorts to say that God is sovereign, that God is in charge and not man. He wants us to know that behind a man's usefulness is a sovereign God who gifts and chooses him to do his will. And don't ever forget that, that all the gifts, all the callings, all the ministries that a man or a woman has are heaven given, heaven sent. As God the Holy Spirit chooses, we don't have any say in the matter. God determines this, the Bible says, four times over in the New Testament. 
He calls some men to, to pastor in areas where there's millions of people in a city. He calls other men to pastor in towns where there's just two or three hundred people in the whole town. Why? Because one man is more important than another? Absolutely not. Because God needs good godly men in both places because he cares about people. He gives some people to be preachers to open the word of God. He gives other people to be people who push a broom and serve the body of Christ in that fashion. Which is more important? Not one than the other. but The one who does the will of God. The Bible says... But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the hand of the feet, I have no need of you. One is not greater than the other, as Paul tells the Corinthians, who are into lifting up people. The fact of the matter is, is that the guy who pushes the broom, if he does it more faithfully than the man who preaches the Bible, will be greater in the coming kingdom of God. And so for John the Baptist to have wished that he were someone else, that he'd be more prominent than he was, would have been to miss God's will and God's call for his life. It would have been, among other things, a form of covetousness. Had he envied the crowds that Jesus had, he would be coveting in his heart, and God had called him to a different calling. Not only would it be covetousness, it would be unbelief because God told him specifically what he had called him to do, and it would be sheer arrogance because he would be basically putting himself in the place of God, and he plainly doesn't do that. He says a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John first declares that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, not man. Secondly, he declares that God is preeminent. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, the Baptist wants us to understand that while all of God's people are important for the work of the kingdom, only one person is preeminent. John the Baptist, unlike his followers, is not perturbed by the rising popularity of Jesus Christ. He has always said from the beginning, I'm just a voice. I'm not the Christ. I've just come to prepare the way for Christ. I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. Would you please note that John does not say in this verse, I am not the Christ and therefore I am nothing. No, he's saying I am not the Christ, but I still have a ministry from God. I am sent. He has given me a work to do. There's a strange concept of humility that sometimes floats in evangelical circles today. And that is that the notion that the person who is humble is insignificant. You cannot find that anywhere in Holy Scripture. No, humility is just living out the call, the purpose that God has put upon your life. Recognizing that in all things Christ is to be glorified. Humility is understanding who you are and who God is, that what you are, you are by the grace of God. Humility does not say, I need first place, but neither does it say, I have no place. Third, I want you to notice John declares that God is to be glorified. Look at verse 29. I love this verse. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. 
He uses a beautiful illustration from the culture of the first century where he calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. Now, the friend of the bridegroom, it's a technical term, but it was more than a best man. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, this was the man who really supervised all the details of the wedding. He'd sent out the invitations. He made the announcements. He uh, supervised uh, uh, those who would give uh, authority over the kitchen, so to speak. But his most special duty was to guard the bridal chamber. You know, in our day, uh, sometimes a couple gets married and somebody will guard the car, but most of the time they'd rather do something to the car. Um, well, the people have not changed much. They would uh, do some things to the bridal chamber, and one of his responsibilities was to guard the bridal chamber. But his job was finished when he would take the hand of the bride and lead her to the bridal chamber, and the groom would take her hand, and he would hear his voice. And he had joy in his heart because his job was done, and he and all the guests could go home. So John says, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He says, I'm like the bridegroom's friend. I don't seek preeminence because it's not my day. No, my joy is in seeing the ministry of the bridegroom fulfilled. That's what John is saying. I have come to point men to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that they're going to him. Because that's what I came to do. How about you? Are you willing to be faceless to announce the Lord? Are you willing not to have center stage, but to exalt Jesus Christ? Almost daily, I get book reviews and conference speakers and folders that come to me through the mail as a pastor. And I'm very disturbed by a lot of the things I read. Very few writers and speakers that they try to get me to come and bring here are just ordinary people. They're all world travelers. They're all noted lecturers. They've all addressed huge audiences. They're all in great demand. And their ministries are described in such a way that they'd make the Apostle Paul look like a midget. I think of Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, a man who sacrificed so much to reach the Chinese people for Jesus Christ. And his ministry continues to this day through that great organization, OMF. And he was being introduced on the platform of one time, and the pastor was introducing him with all kinds of superlatives, great this, great that. And finally, he stepped to the pulpit and he says, Dear friends, I am the little servant of a great master. That's John's attitude. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's great sincerity in this statement. And I learned something about true humility. And that true humility calls attention not to self, but to Christ. You say, well, that's obvious. But you see, that's not the way it always is. You hang around people sometimes, and they'll tell you how humble they are. <laughs> you see that word must? He must increase. The second must is not found in the text. In fact, the King James italicizes it, letting you know it's not in the original. Literally, it reads, he must increase, but I decrease. That's important now. The translators add it to smooth out the reading. But the first must is clearly stated. What's the point? True humility is not in putting yourself down. True humility is in putting Jesus Christ up. Ironically, those people who strain to be humble typically call attention to themselves. 
And that's why it's so critically important that you spend time with Jesus Christ every day. I don't start my day. Typically, I don't even eat breakfast until I've been alone with Jesus Christ. And I put my eyes on Him, the author and finisher of my faith. Humility is not the, the product of something you try to cultivate. It's really the product of giving your attention to Jesus Christ. The real question is not, how can I humble myself? The real question is, how can I occupy myself with Christ? He must increase, but I decrease. Now, Jesus and John are not rivals because the object of John's preaching is Jesus Christ. Some people measure their ministry by how many people they have. Someone recently was trying to impress me with the largest church in a city nearby here, and I said, I'm not impressed at all. You say, you're not? I said, no, your church teaches that baptism saves a man. That is utter heresy. They got 2,000 plus people, but that's heresy. Baptism saves absolutely nothing. No one. You can't measure success always by numbers. Listen, I've had some pastor churches go, some pastor friends go into some churches where they shrunk the church, where the attendance was cut in half, sometimes in quarter, because they had sat under a pastor for so long that it just tickled their ears and hadn't told them the truth. And when they begin to open the word of God, they become unpopular. John the Baptist's ministry would not be deemed as successful today, but it was in God's sight. Finally, very quickly, let's consider what John the Apostle defends. Now, why should we heed the witness of John the Baptist? Well, John the Evangelist, the Apostle who wrote this Gospel, now interjects with his own commentary. Remember, there's no quotation marks in the original or so forth, but there's a drastic change in style indicating as we saw last time in a latter section, uh, beginning in verse 16 to 21 of chapter 3, that John begins to interject. Well, here what we find is three statements that he makes about why John is right to say, Christ must increase and I must decrease. First, because of Christ's divine origin. Notice verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth, and he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He's interrupting this discourse, as it were, of John the Baptist to give his own explanation. He recognizes that Jesus Christ ought to be above all because he's from above all. He's from heaven. John's from earth. He is from heaven. He is to be supreme. Secondly, not just because of his divine origin, but because of his divine testimony. Look at verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. And no man receives his witness. The Lord Jesus is able to share that which he's seen and heard. Why? Because he comes from the Father. Verse 33, he who has received his witness, that is Christ's witness, has set his seal to this, that God is true. He is saying here, John the Apostle, if you receive Christ's witness, if you receive Christ's testimony, you're sealing the fact, you're saying God is true, God is right. Now this is significant, this verse, don't miss it. Because very often you will meet people who say, well, I believe in God, but I don't know what I believe about Jesus Christ. You ever meet folks like that? No, all the time. Sure you have. 
But what he is saying here is you cannot believe in God without believing in Jesus Christ. It is only as you receive Jesus Christ's testimony that you put the seal that what God has said is true. Otherwise, you call God a liar. Why? Because God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now you and I have a measure of the Spirit. To each is given a measure of faith, Paul will write. And that's the most we could be given, one, because of our sinful nature, and two, because we're finite individuals. If we had the Spirit without measure, we'd pop. (laughs) But Christ is an infinite person. He has the Spirit without measure. And so since He comes from above, since He says and does only that which He sees the Father and hears the Father say, to believe in Jesus Christ is to believe in God, and the opposite is true. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject God. Now there's a lot in that verse. Think on it. Finally, John urges that Christ is to be supreme above all because of his divine authority. Notice how this section closes. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, typically we think of the Father's love for a lost world, but here there's mention of the Father's love for God the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, the Bible says he has given all things into his hands. Now, I love my children in a way that I can't give them all things. Sometimes my love, much like the Father's love towards me, has to be restrictive because there's some things He needs to teach me first. But here is a sinless person. And so the Father gives Him all things because He loves Him in this way. It's an infinite love relationship within the members of the Godhead. That's what made Calvary so incredible. That the Father and the Spirit forsook the Son. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A perfect, infinitely perfect love relationship was broken there in Golgotha. God loves his son infinitely. And if he loves him that way and you ignore God's son, no wonder he says this. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He lays out two alternatives, genuine faith and defiant disobedience. He who believes in the Son has. Note there the tense, not will have, but has. It's a present tense. Because eternal life is not just heaven, it's a relationship. Jesus will later say in this gospel, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is a living relationship with God that can begin on this earth. And once it's begun, because it's eternal, it never ends. It just changes places from earth to heaven. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the alternative is chilling. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Whoever rejects the Son... Whoever does not believe the Son, whoever does not obey the Son, for that's the sense of this verb, the wrath of Almighty God is resting upon him. Listen, you don't want to die with the wrath of God resting upon you. You want to die with the wrath of God lifted off of you. And so failure to trust in God's Son, to believe in God's Son, is to call God a liar and what he has said about his Son. 
You say, well, that's just what the Bible says. You're right, that's what the Bible says. And you've got some basis for believing what you believe. And it's either the Bible or something else. And so who's right? I go with the Bible. If you ignore the words of the Son of God, the one who is from above, the one who sees the Father do all things, the one who is given the Spirit without measure, then the wrath of God abides upon you. But obey His word. Because obedience is what true faith always elicits. There are so many people who say, I'm saved. And they don't obey the living God. They have an empty profession. Now, I didn't read all of Matthew 11, 11 to you, but let me read it now in its entirety. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women... There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Isn't that interesting? You see, John the Baptist lived under the old deal, under the old covenant. He lived on the other side of Calvary. We live on this side of Calvary. Jesus spoke of a new covenant instituted by his death on the cross where the Spirit of God who had been with the disciples could now come to live in the disciples. And so he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. We can have a relationship with the living God that in one sense no Old Testament saint could have ever known. A new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I'll take their heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. No man will have to go around saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. You believe in the Son, and though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. You believe in the Son, and you can expect to see your name in the Lamb's book of life when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the world. You believe in the Son, and God will put His precious Holy Spirit in your bosom, and God will become real to you, a living, pulsating, personal relationship with a loving Father. Praise God. Father, thank you for this chance to look at these wonderful verses of Holy Scripture. I pray today, Father, for someone who has never come to true faith in Jesus Christ. They don't have the assurance that if Jesus came today or they die, that they'd go to heaven. Because they have not yet believed what you promised. That Christ's death was sufficient, that he can save anyone, that whosoever will may come. And maybe that's you, maybe I'm speaking to you today. I invite you there in the quietness of your own heart to believe God's word that what he did through his son satisfied his wrath, that he is able to save you through him. Would you say in simple faith today, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you save me, I will obey you. And I will take the very first step of obedience this day and publicly confess you before men. Now, Father, thank you for this man of God, John the Baptist, the greatest born of women. What a wonderful man. What an example you've given us. But how you've blessed us even beyond John to say that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We thank you for the blessings of this new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
787-787-7478 and requesting program John 009. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.